Well, it's great to be here. I hope you've had a good day and that uh, you got all the sleep you needed last night and you don't need any more just now. <laughs> uh, we're going to look at two very familiar characters. I'm sure all of you know them reasonably well. I'm going to read a bit starting in the first book of Samuel, chapter 9, and there'll be various other bits and you can follow along as and when you wish. <coughs> the, uh, one of the questions that often occurs in Christian families, particularly with teenage kids, is to what extent are we supposed to be like everybody else and to what extent are we supposed to be different? Is it okay to play the same music? Is it okay to watch the same movies? Is it okay to read the same books? <coughs> and uh, quite often the kids ask, why do we have to be different? <laughs> uh, but then, of course, we are God's people. <laughs> and it's not what we think so much as what he thinks. And... I'm reminded of a time when I worked at a Bible school in England called Cape Mary Hall, and it had uh, 200 students from all over the world, and many of them coming looking for partners, although they said they'd come to study the scriptures. <laughs> and there was a wonderful staircase, nine feet wide, coming down 32 degrees to the horizontal with a wooden rail along the side, highly polished, just great for sliding down, <laughs> except the brass knobs every three feet that kind of interrupted your progress a bit. <clears throat> and one day I was uh, walking through the hallway and the staircase was on my right, and I heard what sounded like the war cry of a Cherokee Indian from up on the top of the stairs, and I looked up, and he was a 19-year-old blonde young lady from San Diego, leaping downstairs at a time, four at a time. She hit the bottom step, swung round the post at the bottom, let go, flew through the air for about six feet, landed right next to me, threw her arms around me, spun me right round twice, <laughs> gave me a big hug and a small kiss and let go, leapt up into the air, shouted, yippee, and disappeared through a doorway. <laughs> I thought I should mention it to my wife, <laughs> in case anybody else did. <clears throat> and uh, she said, oh, you are slow. And I've been thinking that myself, but I was surprised that she was. But anyway, I, I just looked at her and she said, don't you know what it's about? And I said, well, she likes me, obviously. <laughs> no, she said, she's getting married, of course. <laughs> oh, I said, no, I thought it was important. <laughs> <laughs> and this girl was behaving in this somewhat bizarre fashion because somebody wanted her. Somebody had chosen her for life. And it was important. 
You know, this is what God says about you and me. You didn't choose me, said Jesus. I chose you. <laughs> and you might sometimes be shocked at yourself. You should be. <laughs> He's not even surprised. He knew all about you before he chose you. And uh, still wants you. And it's a huge privilege to be chosen. And he's chosen us out of the world that we might be his message into the world and his access into the world to change it because it desperately needs it, does it? <coughs> and... Uh, should we then be difficult? Well, yeah, we should. And that sort of underlies uh, the idea of um, <clears throat> 1 Samuel chapter 9. Until that time, his people were, of course, people that we now know as the Jews or as Israel. And... Uh, they were supposed to be a theocracy. God was ruling and they were just to do as they were told. God thought that was a pretty good arrangement. And, uh, but nobody else had the same arrangement. So they asked for a king, like all the other nations, one, like, one to be like everybody else. Uh, so... Well, God is usually pretty cooperative, and uh, if you want a king, you can have a king. Let me guess what kind of a king you want. <laughs> well, that's a big question these days, isn't it? Because if you're an American, you really don't want a king. You really want, uh, uh, <laughs> yeah, one of those. <laughs> <clears throat> so the story begins there. In 1 Samuel 9, there was a Benjamite, a man of standing, that is wealth and political influence, or social influence, whose name was Kish. <clears throat> he had a son named Saul, an impressive young man, ladies. <laughs> an impressive young man without equal among the Israelites, a head taller than any of the others. Now the donkeys belonging to Saul's father, Kish, got lost. Well, donkeys aren't really that smart. <laughs> Not too much of a surprise, is it? Donkeys belonging to Saul's father, Kish, were lost. And Kish said to his son, Saul, Take one of the servants with you and go and look for the donkeys. That ever happened in your family? Your dad say to you, take one of the servants. And, yeah. It didn't happen in mine, I hastened to add. <clears throat> but it was that kind of a family, influential, uh, pretty well healed, and Saul is that much taller than anybody else in the country and really good looking and really nice disposition. Quite a catch. So Saul takes one of the servants and apparently there were several to choose from 
And he picked one and off they went and they couldn't find these wretched donkeys. Donkeys were playing hide and seek and they were actually a little smarter than Saul was because they were winning. And they went all over the place and spent days trying to find them. And uh, finally Saul gave up. He was nice and he was hardworking and thorough, but he was also considerate. And he said, you know, my dad does want the donkeys, but he's more concerned about his son. And he'll be getting worried about us now. It's been days, we better go back. And the servant said, well, because there's one more thing we can try. See, we have been all these miles and we have stopped at this little tiny place. It's just down the road there, you can see it. And there's a man of God there. He's a prophet. And everything he says comes true. Why don't we go and ask him? See, now, while Saul was intelligent and impressive looking and well brought up and pleasant and all the rest of it, he wasn't particularly religious. Yeah. Uh, he didn't mind going to church ooh, twice a year, even you know, Christmas and Easter, you could do that. But, but you don't want to be a fanatic, go all the time. And I mean, actually, go to see people who think they know God and get messages and all that. Hey, you don't want to do that, do you? Yeah. And how weird... Of all the servants I might have brought, I brought this one. And of all the places we might have stopped the donkey hunt, we stopped right next to this town. And he really doesn't want to go, but neither is he the kind of guy just to run, ride roughshod over the feelings of his servant. So he doesn't want to just slap him down but he comes up with a perfect excuse. You know, that's a good idea, but servants of God always need an offering. And we haven't got one. And we can't go without an offering. That would be an insult. So, nice idea, but let's just go home. Isn't that a nice excuse, perfect way out? And the servant <laughs> fished in his pocket and brought out a coin and said, Oh, look. <laughs> and the rich guy has no money, but the servant's got a coin. <laughs> and so we, this would be just right to give the man. Let's go. Hallelujah. <laughs> <laughs> and so they head into town, and Saul is praying for the first time <laughs> that the guy won't be there, he'll be out. And as they walk in through the gate of the town, some men sitting, and he stops to ask them, is the prophet at home? Oh, yes, he arrived yesterday. And there's this awful sense that everything seems to be ganging up to make him meet this guy. <coughs> 
And now he walks in through the entrance, and there's a little old guy walking along, and Saul goes over to him and says, Excuse me, can you tell me where the prophet lives? And the little old guy looks at him and says, I am the prophet. <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> well, no escape now, is there? <laughs> and then he looks at him, his name is Samuel, <clears throat> and he says, your name is Saul. I know that. If that's donkeys are lost, you think. <laughs> Actually, they've gone home. <clears throat> and Saul's just thinking, well, let me get home as well. And so Samuel says, and your dad's getting anxious about you, but it's too late. You'd better stay overnight and eat with me tonight, stay with me tonight, go home tomorrow. And the rich guy is now being hosted by the man of God, who apparently isn't all that poor <laughs> or needy or manipulative. And Saul stays and in the morning, Samuel anoints him to be the first king of Israel. Just the sort of person that the people would have chosen if they'd had a choice. And Saul can't wait to get out of there and he doesn't tell anybody because he doesn't want the job and he heads home. But when he gets home, There's a little village just down the road called Jabesh Gilead and they are being threatened by a major army <clears throat> and they've sent for help and the Spirit of God comes on Saul and an army rallies around him and he goes and he rescues this small community, drives away the enemy and the whole nation is thrilled and everybody says, Saul for king, Saul for king. And Saul becomes king. And what you see there is in some ways a man who's got everything going for him. Isn't it? Good family, plenty of money, good physique, good looks. Victory behind him, army behind him, nation behind him. And a God who can answer his questions. You saw, your donkeys are at home. Your dad's worried about you. And a God who can use him to do things he never thought he'd be able to do. Never imagined he'd be involved in. Here he is a king and a hero and a deliverer. Got everything going for him, hasn't he? What a bright future. But he's still not very keen on the job. And he gets two challenges. One is in uh, chapter 13, 
In chapter 13, Saul was 30 years old when he became king. He reigned over Israel 42 years. Saul chose 3,000 men from Israel. 2,000 were with him in the hill country, and 1,000 were with his son Jonathan at Gibeah. The rest of the men he sent back to their homes. Jonathan attacked the Philistine outpost at Gibeah. And the Philistines heard about it. Then Saul had the trumpet blown throughout the land and said, let the Hebrews hear. The Philistines assembled to fight Israel with 3,000 chariots, 6,000 charioteers, and soldiers as numerous as the sand on the seashore. They went up and camped at Michmash, east of Beth Haven. <coughs> the Philistines at that time were the most powerful nation, and they were the second cruelest of the enemies that Israel would have in all their years. The only worst ones were the Assyrians, where Jonah went, <coughs> and uh, they were very powerful. And they kept a stranglehold on all the little nations that they conquered. So, for example, Israel had no weapons and they were not allowed even to have a blacksmith. <coughs> if their tools needed sharpening, and they did, they had to go to Philist the Philistines and pay to get their tools sharpened. And it was an agricultural community and they did not have steel tools. Steel was invented in the city I come from a long time after Saul. And the iron was very soft and you might have a sharp tool and it last about 10 minutes and needed sharpening hand. <coughs> and so that was one way that the Philistines kept control and kept everybody else down. So this massive army is uh, coming against them. And Samuel gives Saul his instructions. And he says, wait here, and I will come and offer a sacrifice. And then God will give you victory over the Philistines. And Saul hears that, and he waits. But he wasn't very good at waiting. And there weren't great circumstances in which to wait because the Philistines were collecting their army and every day there were more Philistine troops in their army and they were a little nearer to Israel. And every day, more of the soldiers in the Israeli army thought, this isn't what I signed up for. <laughs> I just wanted the uniform and the wages. I didn't want to fight. <coughs> and they began to dwindle. And they hid in the, in the caves and the mountains and the rocks and the forests. Every day, Saul had fewer troops and the Philistines had more. And it was already a very unequal proportion anyway. So Saul remained at Gilgal and all the troops with him were quaking, quaking with fear. 
He waited seven days, the time set by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and Saul's men began to scatter. So he said, Bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings. And Saul offered up the burnt offering just as he finished making the offering, Samuel arrived, and Saul went out to greet him. What have you done? said Samuel. Saul replied, when I saw that the men were scattering, that you didn't come at the set time, the Philistines were assembling, I thought, now the Philistines will come against me, and I'm not sought God's favor, so I felt compelled to offer the burned offering. You acted foolishly, Samuel said. You have not kept the command of the Lord. There's an interesting verse in the next chapter, chapter 14, verse 6, which is Saul's son, Jonathan. <clears throat> Jonathan said to his young armor-bearer, Come, let's go over to the outpost of those uncircumcised fellows. Perhaps the Lord will act on our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. Relative numbers of troops have got nothing to do with the outcome. The battle is the Lord's. Isn't that right? Of course it's right. But put yourself in Saul's position. He's, so there's only his second battle. And he wasn't really looking for the first one. <coughs> He's not an experienced commander. He's not a man with a deep relationship with God. He sees religion as a good kind of moral exercise to boost morale and get the troops a bit gung-ho to go into battle. He doesn't really see that the battle is in God's hands. And so he's got to go now. And that is a test that God put him under. And he just used a few days to let the pressure build on Saul. God is great at using time. See, God is never late. Why not? He starts on time. That's the secret of not being late. How does he know to start on time? Well, he knows everything. <laughs> yeah. But God uses time. He, he may never be late, but he does miss quite a few opportunities to be early. <laughs> and sometimes we think that the fact that he's not early means he's late <laughs> or he's not coming. <clears throat> and the pressure builds on, on Saul and it examines what's really inside him. And it's a lack of faith in God. And it's, he's much, much more inclined to put his trust in his own resources, not in his God. <clears throat> and Samuel tells him, you know, this was just a test. And if you'd passed it, the kingdom would have remained in your family forever. But now what? The kingdom, as far as your family is concerned, will end with you, and that will pass to another family. 
<coughs> so that was the first test. Did Saul really trust God? No, he didn't. The next one. <coughs> chapter 15. There's another en enemy now, and it's an old enemy, Amalek. Samuel said to Saul, I am the one the Lord sent to anoint you king over his people Israel. So listen now to the message from the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they first came up out of Egypt. Now go attack the Amalekites and totally destroy everything that belongs to them. Do not spare them, put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle, sheep, camels, donkeys. You'd keep nothing. Got it? Yes, sir. So Saul goes off to battle with his army and fights against the Amalekites. God gives them victory. God does it. There are some scrawny looking sheep. Oh, got to kill the sheep. Oh, look at that one though. That one's so nice and fat and some good steaks on that one, man. <laughs> hey, wow. <coughs> and uh, then they find some money that, you know, no point throwing that away, is there? <coughs> and then, you know, the first time I came to America, I was really, really impressed. I think the second home I stayed in had this amazing trophy. It's about yay big. I didn't know anybody. Uh, Amongst my friends in England, or anything like this, wow, amazing. And the third home I stayed in had an even bigger one. Then I found out that that one was sort of a trophy for being the assistant lemonade carrier to the under 14 baseball reserves. <laughs> and, uh, you just don't get trophies for anything like that in England. You, you. <coughs> and uh, so, but I think Saul had a problem because he was used to seeing all these trophies and he'd never had one. And now this is the second battle he's won and no trophies yet. And then he sees the king of the Amalekites who has been taken captive. And wow, what better trophy to have than a captive king, yeah? And so he keeps Agan, the, the king, as a little trophy on one side and they keep the best of the animals and the best of the goodies and they kill it and get rid of everything they don't want. And Samuel arrives and 
And Saul goes to him and says, Oh, blessed are you of the Lord. I've done everything that I was told to do. And Samuel said, Really? That sounds awfully like sheep. Is that sheep, Saul? Where's the sheep come from? Oh, well, uh, we've killed all the, the diseased ones, but uh, the soldiers wanted to keep the best ones to sacrifice to the Lord, so I let them do that. <laughs> and Samuel utters his most famous lines, to obey is better than sacrifice. <clears throat> and he kills Agag, the king, and they destroy those sheep. But now Saul is rejected from being king and the Holy Spirit left him. The Holy Spirit which alone equipped him to be king. The Holy Spirit who alone could give him victory and make him successful. And you now see a man who is literally God-forsaken. He's still king. He's still taller than anybody else. He's still rich, still popular. Just God-forsaken. And an evil spirit from God troubles him. And he can't face life. He's tormented, depressed. And somebody suggests music as a good antidote. And David is brought in. Musician. But David has been anointed to be the next king. Saul has not been informed of this. But now you see a boy who is spirit anointed and a king who is spirit abandoned together. You get a good comparison. <coughs> and as David uses his divine gift of music, uh, Saul is soothed and he's brought peace he can get through his day. Then, of course, various other things happen. The obvious one is Goliath. <coughs> Goliath, we're told, is about nine feet six. And that's a bit bigger than Saul or anybody else in the country. Saul is probably seven feet six. <coughs> uh, and he's way bigger than anybody else. And Goliath issues his challenge, find me a man who can come and fight me, and nobody wants to. <laughs> and uh, David has six older brothers, and he's not old enough to be in the army. He's left at home looking after the sheep. <coughs> but his dad sends him with packed lunch, for his brothers in the army and he brings it to them 
in time to hear Goliath's challenge and everybody is quaking with fear, including Saul, who is the obvious person to go and fight him, if anybody's going to. There are only two swords in the whole army, and he is one of them. His son has the other one. <coughs> and um, David hears this, and his older brothers are not very happy to see him, even though they want the food. <coughs> and... Uh, David hears the challenge and he says, "What? what's in it for the guy who uh, who goes and fights him then? And, and, and they say, oh, he gets the king's daughter for his wife. And uh, so why is nobody going then? <coughs> it's a bit embarrassing for his older brothers and they, they get a bit knocked with him and they say, what are you doing here anyway, sneaky little kid? You should be back there with the sheep. I know, you've just come to watch the battle. David looks around and says, battle? Is there a battle? I didn't see a battle. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and David goes and has an interview with Saul and he sees a man who's God forsaken. And he's got a big responsibility as king. And his nation are being threatened. He's not equal to it. Too scared. And of course we know what happens. David kills the giant and is celebrated. <laughs> Victory for Israel. The Philistines are driven off. The girls come out with their harps and singing, Saul has slain his thousands and David is 10,000. What? And Saul is jealous and furious. He, he's a man who's God forsaken. Just at the time he ought to be most grateful, didn't he? He's not grateful at all. He's jealous. He's angry. Tries to kill David. His only hope, tried several times to kill David, in fact. <coughs> and uh, in the end, David has to leave and hide out in the countryside for months. Saul pursues him with an army of 3,000 men trying to kill him. David catches him twice, spares his life. And still, Saul can't see what a fool he's being. David is described by God as being a man after his own heart. Does that mean he's perfect? <laughs> Not exactly. <laughs> and David is in his palace one day and he should really be on the battlefield but he's for some reason not he's enjoying home life looks out of the window and here's a very elegant young woman with no clothes on having a bath and <coughs> it's too much for David he's red-blooded and uh, summons her Turns out that she is the wife of one of David's heroes, 
who's away fighting the battle that David should be fighting. But uh, David doesn't realize that at the time. But the woman inevitably gets pregnant and informs David, what's he going to do now? Well, somehow he's got to hush it all up, hasn't he? Do our politicians ever do anything like that? We won't even go to Watergate, will we? Um, <clears throat> how to cover this up, though? I mean, babies are babies. They tend not to cooperate very much. <laughs> <clears throat> and... Uh, David does his best. He sends for Uriah, the husband, tells him to go home and have a night at home with his wife, and he refuses. And my colleagues are out there on the battlefield, and I'm not going to live it up at home. <coughs> and uh, so what David thought was a strategy to make it look as though Uriah was the father fails. And then in desperation, he sends Uriah back to the battlefield with a letter to the commander telling him to put Uriah right in the front row, lead an attack, and then pull everybody else back and leave him to be killed. Which is what happened. Uriah's in effectively murdered. David is responsible. He's now free, of course, to marry the woman, which he does, and then the baby's born. And looks as though it's a successful strategy. Nobody knows except God and David and Bathsheba. <coughs> and uh, God informs his prophet Nathan. And Nathan confronts David and uh, David is certainly not perfect, is he? Adulterer, hypocrite, murderer. Far from perfect. So why is a man after God's own heart? Out of this David writes a couple of psalms. Blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him, and in whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. That was David's experience between committing his sin and owning up to it. As long as I kept silent, 
when I refuse to admit it, when I keep up the pretense of being a godly king, I was just shriveled up inside. No energy, no zest for life. Life was just a burden. And keeping up the pretense was so difficult. If you've tried to cover up something, you use a lie to cover it up. And when that comes under stress, then you need another lie. <laughs> there was a schoolboy motto in England. A lie is an abomination unto the Lord and an ever-present help in time of trouble. <laughs> but you soon get tired of keeping on and on trying to cover it all up, don't you? Hmm? When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover up my iniquity. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. It was a fairly well-to-do couple. And um, they had no children, nice house, good income. Wife didn't have a job because her husband didn't want her to work. He wanted to have it easy. But life was a bit boring for her. And he was working quite long hours. And she found a little habit that was quite amusing, really. She'd go to a supermarket and she'd look around, see everything there, pick something out. And then uh, she would just casually walk by the counter and help herself to it, stick it in the pocket and walk on out. <coughs> Didn't need it. Could easily afford it. But that wasn't the fun. And the fun was doing it. And it became a habit until every Friday. She'd choose a different store choose something. All little things, trivial things, tiny things. She was having fun. Then one day as she was on her way out of the store, somebody tapped her on the shoulder and it was a store detective. He took her into an office and the owner of the store was there. And made her sit down, turned on the television and it had film of her 
six times over a period of some months stealing from that store. And her own comment was, it was just fun, I didn't see anything wrong with it, I wasn't a criminal, until I watched it and saw what I was doing in the presence of those other people. And then I felt so guilty and so rough. Just wish the floor would open up and swallow me. <coughs> you can be like that for years until God makes you sit down and take a look at yourself. Until Nathan comes and points at you and says, you're the man. It's you we're talking about. And when you see your sin as God sees it in his presence, and you agree with him as to what it really is, sin. Then... Forgiveness is so beautiful, isn't it? I said I will acknowledge my sin. I will not cover up my iniquity. And you forgave me. The other psalm he wrote... talks about this too. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight? Surely I have been a sinner from birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. Let me hear the joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. God, I have no excuses, no mitigating circumstances. I'm guilty. Do what you must, but... I have one plea. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. 
When I was a teenager, I shared a palace with a king. And you'd taken your Holy Spirit from him. I saw him as he sat on the battlefield when he should have been going out to face Goliath, when he should have been carrying his responsibility, enjoying your favor, entering into your victory and sharing it with those that you'd given to him. And he wasn't equal to it. Just sat there in fear, doing nothing. I looked into his tortured visage as he couldn't face life in his own palace. He had to be entertained to get him out of himself. God, whatever you do, don't take your Holy Spirit from me. The Holy Spirit is the one who makes life what it should be for the believer. Equips you for the battle, equips you for the responsibility, brings you joy even on the darkest days and overflows into the lives of all you influence. But thanks God on a daily basis to fill us and fill us and fill us. Why? We need him. Amen. Even if you're king, you need him. Thank you.